0: Ephesians chapter 3 Ephesians chapter 3 we've been here for a minute and Working on verses 4 through 6, actually 5 and 6 this morning. And I'm keying on that phrase there in verse 6, partakers of promise. Partakers of promise. I want you to be full on partakers of the promises of God. I want you to realize everything that God has given us in Christ is available to each and every believer. And it's um, it's a promise that kind of lays dormant in some of us, doesn't it? We don't full-on grasp everything that God has for us, I think, sometimes. And um, we're going to look at that a little bit this morning. So let's uh, let's read the first six verses. We'll have a little bit of prayer. We'll see what Paul has for us and the Spirit works in our lives this morning in these truths. For I, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I've written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been now made known or revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, I just pray that uh, you work in the hearts of your people. Father, as we uh, expound the short passage of Scripture this morning, that you would bring an understanding and bring a motivation to their lives that goes past the simplicity of my words and speaks directly to their hearts, that builds them up. This is what scripture does for us, Father, that you've given us, that in sin we've lost, but by grace through this scripture, uh, you're repairing and rebuilding those broken lives. And you're giving us strength and encouragement, helping us to live our lives here until that day, Father, when we are taken from this place to stand face to face with our Lord. Until that day of glorification, uh, and that you will be continuing that work in us, sanctifying us washing us, making us clean. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Partakers of promise, full-on partakers, not willy-nilly, but full-on partakers of the promise of Christ. How often do we want more of Christ in our life, more of the glory, more of the victory, more of what God has done in Christ on our behalf? more of the rid of shame and guilt of sin and more of the victory of life everlasting, more of an understanding that we're immortal until the day we die. I told my son that just the other day and we were talking about these things. We're immortal until the day we die and then the day we die, our physical body dies. We stand in perfection before Jesus Christ our Lord and understand these promises like we could have never understood them here although they're the same promises and they're just as fully in effect today that they are on that day if we would just reach out and grab them and run for all they're worth. That's what Paul is doing that's why he's in prison and that's kind of the dichotomous point of this this morning is that if we full-on grab the promises of Christ here, it says in 1 Timothy that if we live a godly life, we will be persecuted. People will look and point. They will talk behind your back. They will say things that are ugly. They will call you names. They will say that you're a hypocrite. They'll do all sorts of things. But Paul leaves no stone unturned in telling us in all of his writings that we can perceive and understand. And I think the greatest point of that is that perception and understanding is that it's in that life, When we grab full on to the promises, even though it can cause some trouble in this life, that's where the greatest joy is. That's where the greatest satisfaction is. That's where he said, I rejoice. That's where the good is. That's where the zen is. That's where the, you know, that's the middle. That's why you open an Oreo and lick the center out first, because that's where you want to be, right? That's grabbing a hold of the promises. So, He's in this digression, these verses 1 through 13, and I think I've made that clear. He wanted to start out by just saying what's in 14, but he needed to soften the blow of his suffering and to tell us something much more about how God works in the lives of his people. And we've seen that over the past few weeks. You know, in verses 1 through 3, for this reason, Paul says, I'm a prisoner in Christ Jesus on behalf of of you Gentiles, you nations, you other people, you people who are not God's people, assuming that you've heard of this stewardship of grace that's been given to me. That's what he called his suffering. That's what he called his ministry. It was a stewardship of grace and it had been given to him for others, for another's glory. And it was in his writing that we can read, perceive, and understand. He was concerned about these Ephesian believers, that they would misconstrue the facts, so to speak. Uh, uh, facts on the ground and the facts of the gospel— and miss the truth about how the word works in our lives. Paul was concerned about this because he's, he's quite frankly, he's writing this letter from a prison cell in Rome. He knew that someone would think about that fact and take into account his life and then juxtapose that with what he'd been preaching, right? And then they would consider him, you know, the words, they would consider him uh, out of his mind, maybe a hypocrite. That's the word we often hear today. And you know this truth is... Still happening today, right? You've heard people say, I'm not setting in that foot in that church with those hypocrites up there on 95 Sparks Avenue, right? You've heard people say that. They don't understand what's truly going on, though. I mean, how could a man who is in jail be the man who is writing the Bible? How does that work out, right? How can that work out? The guy's in jail. What did he do wrong? And you're telling me he's writing the Bible? But this is exactly how God works. It's exactly why the the world will question it, because it's exactly how God works in our lives. Because if sin becomes the only determining factor, then everybody should be locked up in prison, right? Sin, Sin becomes the only thing that we have that we're equitable among all of us equally, is that we're all sinners before God. But this is the glorious work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those of you who have placed your trust in Jesus and repented of your sin, you are no longer identified by that sin. It may have been yours previously, but it's your faith and your repentance that changed your identity from lost, dead, dying person to saved, living person full of life. You've been washed white as snow. You're justified. You're made new. God sees you as righteous, not as a sinner. He sees you as righteous because when he looks at you, he's given you his son's righteousness. So he sees you as completely righteous, even though you still sin and fall short here. But Jim down at the corner market, he doesn't have God's vision he can't see what God sees, so he sees you as a hypocrite. And this is Paul's, and this is the center of Paul's concern. These Ephesians, most of them were been new believers. Paul uh, was seeing his suffering; could have seen that they, you know, uh, Matthew says, and it's from the from the book of Isaiah that uh, Jesus, God, has said, um, "A bruised reed I will not break, a smoking flax I will not extinguish." In other words. When you first light that candle, you kind of hold your hand around it, right? That faith is new. You're kind of protective with it. It can't ever go completely away, but you're, it's delicate. You need to need to suffer with it. And Paul didn't want them uh, to be hurt in his understanding of his being imprisoned on their behalf. So he digresses, and in doing so, he teaches the church that his suffering is actually for the progress of the gospel and the prophet of the church in fact suffering is being a full participant right? A full partaker verse six. do you see it there? Let's read it again that the Gentiles the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. you see I'm kind of skipping a past this this week. members of the same body that means that we're heirs in God's family. We read that in chapter two. We're members of the same body. in other words, God is taking Jew and Gentile and bringing them into the church. And partakers of the promise, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, partakers of all the promises of God, going full on into it. That is never going to be the world's message because if you're suffering, it has to be something that you've done wrong, right? That's the way the world sees it. If there's some kind of suffering in your life, it's because you've done something wrong or you weren't smart enough or you didn't take advantage of this one situation. And if you don't believe me, ask Job's friends. They thought he was a hypocrite. But throughout church history, this suffering is the way that God moves the gospel along, and he was moving it along. Indeed, as Paul suffered there in prison, he was doing it through the Ephesians, and he's doing it still today. So Paul wanted to communicate in all this one simple fact. The mystery of Christ that was made known to him was worth giving his whole life for. The mystery of Christ that was made known to him was worth giving his whole life for, suffering for. He was not ashamed, nor was he sorry, nor did he regret any of the things that he was going through. But it was just the opposite. He rejoiced. He rejoiced. Beloved, if it was that way for Paul, if you will partake in all the promises of the gospel, you too will find rejoicing in whatever God brings you to. Do you understand that? So him being suffering in prison, the weak faith of these new Ephesian believers, he knew where they were headed. He knew that someday they would understand the mystery of Christ so well that they too would rejoice in their suffering. And he needs to get them from point A to point B. You see that? That's what he's doing. And he says, if you read my writing, you can understand all this, the mystery of Christ. Which, what is that ultimately? It's just a plan and working of all of God. You go back to 1 chapter 1, verse 10. Do you see it there? He said, this is the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In other words, it's what God's doing in toto of everything, even still today in 2023. He's still working out this plan to bring all things together in Christ. Paul got bought into this because he had a real vision of Jesus Christ. He had a real experience with Christ on the road to Damascus, and it turned him smack dab around in that road, and he went 180 degrees in the opposite direction than the way he was going. He got it kind of all at once. We kind of grow into it, right? He got it all at once. He went from killing Christians to suffering in prison for Christianity. (laughs) And what he is saying is this is the craziest thing in the world. He said, I thought I was happy, but I was miserable. And now I understand how happy I am because I'm grabbing a hold of everything God's called me to do. The truth is that the promise of the gospel was a message that exceeded the value of everything else in this world combined. It was the pearl of great value. And listen to me this morning. If you're living your life with one foot in church and one foot in the world, you're missing out on the promises of God. You're just standing straddle-legged, not taking up all that there is there for you to have. Paul uniquely understood there was nothing more important, nothing, and he worked diligently to get this message to the world. You see there he writes in verses 3 and 4, and this is just simplicity to me, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, that is what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. That mystery being everything about the knowledge of who Christ is. Today we're going to center a little bit more on that so we'll understand it better. But basically it's just what 110 says. It's the way that God's doing everything. And if you know the way that God's doing everything, you shouldn't be lost. You shouldn't be left out. You should be living a life that you're going to be called into account before him someday to give answers to. You should be living like you know that God's in control. You should be living... Like you know that Christ is going to win in the end. You should be living as such. And boy, do we need people living like that in this world, even if it causes them to suffer. He says, verses 3 and 4, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. So he took the revelation he was given, he wrote it down so that we have it, we can understand it, and we can live accordingly. We can do what... Paul did, right? As I have written briefly, he says, when you read this, you can perceive it, my insight into the mystery of Christ. And that's just a brief recap of last week. Paul had been giving this calling, this truth, this direct revelation by God through meeting Jesus there at Damascus at the time of his conversion, along with the working of the Spirit and lead him to led him to write down exactly everything that he was giving so that we could benefit from it to day, so that we could have that same experience, that same encounter with God through Jesus Christ, so that we could turn from the path we're on, the way of this world, and all the things that we think are important and turn to Jesus Christ and live our life in a much different way. Live in victory, live in truth, live with the understanding that Christ is reigning, even now though we can't see it, and that we will stand before him accountable for every word that we spoke and every deed that we've acted. Everything that Paul had been given in that revelation, when he added it all up, all the truth of the gospel, all the truth of what God is doing in the world, all of it, I mean, God split the sky and kawaco. What had not been known by Paul before was now clear, and it was worth everything. Worth everything. The promises made him a sure and able body partaker of all that was to come his way by grabbing hold tight to all the promises of God and living his life for God's glory and the gospel's advance. Shortly put, Paul became a partaker of the promise, and we can be same partakers of that promise, beloved. We can do that. And I'm really going to step on it some today because... The energy I should be expending on gloating about that drumming those eagles took last week. I'm channeling that into the admonishing the church this morning. So I don't know if you should be thankful or not until we get done. Thank you for that. (laughs) Or you might throw something at me. Because the church today and the men and women of the church are missing one of the greatest blessings they could ever have. What is that? Simply put, it is being all in, being a full participant and partaking of all the promises of Christ. You're missing it. Some of you are missing it. Some of you just need to let go. And You know, it's, it's, uh, wow, this is a great illustration. This came to my mind that only the men are going to get probably. But I remember that first time on my little 80 Yamaha dirt bike. You know, I kept watching on TV, and i watching on TV those guys go into that corner, they throw that foot down, and that back tire comes out, and they just whips around that corner. And I can remember going and not quite going fast enough, and bam, I hit the ground, right? Four or five times, but then I remember that first time I threw that foot out, and the back of that bike come out, and it slid around, and it looked just, in my mind, It looked just like what I saw on TV for those guys that were racing. It was like smooth as butter. It went like around that corner. I was letting it all hang out, and it happened, and it will for you in Christ. Beloved, don't hold back. Don't hold back in your life. Most people, they divide their time. They bifurcate their resources, not equally, I might add. Too many people, this is what's going on in the church Beloved, today, and this is what I'm going to challenge you because going forward, I'm going to continue to challenge on this. We're coming in to these parts of Ephesians where this is going to get real. Most people come to church on Sunday and spend very little time the rest of the week praying or reading or understanding the promises that God gave them. And it makes your life weak. And it robs others of seeing the glory of what God's doing. Since they give, and too many give very little, they never become full participants. And because of that, you're going to miss what Paul's trying to say here. He's going to say you're going to become overjoyed about suffering for Christ. And there's no two ways about it. If you let go and let it all hang out and grab a hold of the promises of God if you truly believe that you're, you're immortal until the day you die, if you truly believe that Jesus came up out of the ground on the third day, if you believe all those things, if you believe that Christ wins in the end, if you believe that all truth and death has been put down, if you believe all those things, you're going to live a much different life. You're going to have joy and rejoicing that you've never known. Because standing in between those two things robs you of the fullness of, of what it means to be fellow heirs and partakers of the promise. And it causes fear. It causes intrepidation. So Paul sets up this challenge, and we see it in verses, we've got to go back and get a little bit of verse 4, but we see it in verses 5 and 6. This is exactly what Paul is saying of God. God has the ability, he has authority, and he has the power to make it all come to pass. Every one of his promises, and that promise is based on God's plan and all of redemptive history. He's going to do exactly what he says he is going to do. He's going to bring everything together in Christ. There's going to be no other way, no other plan, no other thing that takes him off that track. It is going to be, he has a one-track mind. He's going to recapitulate everything in Jesus Christ. It is the only act that ultimately matters, and it is based there, as I said earlier in Ephesians 1 through 10, and in Jesus Christ. And what God is doing to recapitulate or renew the whole world in Jesus Christ. So Paul dips back into the sovereignty and the authority of God here momentarily. He's already been there in chapter 1 to save those, to talk about the salvation for those whom uh, God will save and reminds us once again that salvation is not just for a singular people but a work of God to the nations, to the Gentiles. You ready? Verses 4 through 6 here, let's just read them again. When you read this, he says, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 5 here, and then we worked on that last week. Uh, uh, I, I, yeah, it was very good. I, I love that passage that Paul reminds us that exactly what had been revealed to him, that he wrote it, that we can read it, that we can perceive it and understand it and be partakers down today, partakers of the promises that were given to him on Damascus Road to us through Scripture and through Christ today. So verses 4, 5, and 6. Uh, That's the mystery of Christ. Verse 5. Catch this because you've got to read it right. I'm using the ESV, I don't know what your version says, but you've got to catch it. Listen. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. And bracket this as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same members of the of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Uh, Paul is essentially saying is that his plan from eternity past God's. Paul is grounding us this as further understanding and light on what God has been doing all along. He's saying it is visible in different levels. It's came to us in different modes throughout eternity. I've been given this insight and perception to bring the whole of this truth together for you. This whole picture is now visible. So he's giving us something that was just giving in bits and pieces in the Old Testament. And then he's saying that in this revelation... I'm writing down now how this all comes together of what God is doing. I've got a fuller understanding. Indeed, because our our Bible is closed, we're not taking new revelation today, and the Bible itself says that, is that it's closed. Paul is saying, I see now how it was written in the Old Testament. I see what's been revealed in the New Testament. It is that same thing that's been revealed to me on the road to Damascus. It is God's entire plan from beginning to start, and I want to tell you that you can be a participant in that if you just grab a hold of all the promises that God has to give in Christ. So it's in seeing that kind of how it was made, how the sausage is made here, that it helps. So which is, was not made known. Verse five, do you see that? And I want you to catch that. It's not been made known to the sons of men in other generation, this mystery. Not that it wasn't Talked about in the Old Testament, but it's not as it has now been revealed. He says, it's not been revealed the way that it's been revealed to me that I'm writing down for you. Because it's now through the holy apostles and the prophets... Talked about them in chapter 2, how they wrote all of Scripture, Old Testament and New, holy uh, apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In other words, it's all come together now. I see it more clearly. And this is a statement that encompasses the truth about how God is revealing his plan for all of redemptive history. What Paul is not saying is that this is something new that never was revealed. No. He is saying that it was not revealed in a way it has been now to him. Okay? Let me explain that a little bit. That is that in the Old Testament was full of truth about Jesus Christ, but it never gave us a vision of Jesus Christ that Paul would have received and wrote in the New Testament. It was full of the vision that God would save us, but it did that in what's called types and shadows of Christ. It begins in Genesis 3.15. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. It is the first mention of Jesus Christ in the Bible, but yet it never says his name. It is the first mention of salvation in Scripture, yet it never talks about the cross. It just merely says this. God says as he's speaking to Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel." And because we have the New Testament, we understand that as the cross. That Satan would bruise the heel of Christ by causing death to him on the cross. But on the third day, he would crush the head of the enemy by coming out of the grave. Of course, Adam was the first man. He was the type of Christ. Noah, he saves through the flood that we relate to baptism. He was a type of Christ. Abraham, father of many nations, right? He is a type of... Of Christ, And in Genesis 22, when Abraham's asked to take his son, his only son, right, almost sounds like only begotten son, his precious son, whom he lived to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah, God was giving us a type of the father and son relationship that God would send his only son to die to be sacrificed, a son that he loved dearly, King David, the mighty warrior. Moses, leading the people out of the slavery of Egypt. All of it points as types and shadows of Christ that was to come. Uh, King Solomon, the richest, wisest king that ever lives. And of course we have the lambs that were given their blood, given the lamb without spot or blemish, uh, and the shed blood in the Old Testament temple. All of these types were present in all of history of the Old Testament, and they point literally to Jesus Christ. As Savior, but what Paul is saying is that with revelation, with this revelation of the mystery of Christ, is that he and other writers of the New Testament are given the further revelation to write the details of the plan of God. And verse six, that includes all the nations, all the peoples, the Gentiles, can become fellow heirs and full participants or partakers of the promise of God in Christ. In other words, you guys can become full participants and partakers of the promises of God in Christ just like Paul the Jew could and what is the one great event that kind of brings this all together that covers the Old Testament and New Testament that paints a vision of what God is doing from beginning to end what is the one great thing that brings all the Old Testament types and shadows to the fullness of the gospel in the New Testament What is it that made everyone in all of history understand the works of God of redemption of man? In fact, all of history hinges on this one thing. What is it that changes everything? What is it that makes all the promises of God true and sure and seals it? It was the cross. It was Jesus dying on that cross, going into that grave, and on the third day rising again. Death, hell, defeated. He come up out of that grave and made fun of the one who has power over death. If someone did that today, in our sight and in our vision, there would be nothing that we wouldn't believe about that one someone. If someone had the ability to make good on a promise to give you a million dollars, If you would have bet right on last week's game, no, that's sin. Don't do that, brothers. But if someone had the ability to make good on a promise to give you $1 million, you'd be skeptical at first because it's too good to be true. But then when they give you, but then what if they gave you incontrovertible evidence that they would do what they said they would do, that they would make good on that promise? Wouldn't you partake in the fullness of that promise? That's what God did with the cross. It changes everything. Quickly turn to Psalms 2. The whole world. Listen to me. And this is why I want you out of the world and why I want you to consider your bifurcation of your time. uh, Stephen Lawson said the problem with preachers today is that nobody wants to kill them. My hope is that in some level when you leave here today that you'll want to kill me. Because I don't want you stuck in this world. I don't want you to miss any of the blessings of the cross. And I certainly don't want you to escape this place this morning without understanding the sovereignty of God in this. All the powers of evil came to Christ on that cross and he defeated them. And if you're messing around in this world, you're messing with that. You're wasting your time. You're robbing yourself of the joy of serving Christ. Psalms 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they've set themselves against the rulers and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. All of evil came against God at that one moment on that cross. And what does verse 4 say? He laughs at them. He who sets in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. Someday he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and nothing, no thing, no power, no power of darkness, no power seen or unseen can take Christ off of his reign. The cross. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, He put them to open shame. Ephesians 4.8, he ascended on high. He whooped them and he led a host of captives and he gives gifts to men. What the main gift that he gives to man is life. Life everlasting, beloved. That is the promise of God with faith in Christ therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 12 verse 29 how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds that strong man Jesus has bound all the powers of darkness and death, and he's plundered that house. Don't stand in the world. Don't mess around in it. Don't fool around with your time. Don't do it. Luke 10, Jesus says this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you. (laughs) Now the judgment of this world is here. Now the ruler of this world is cast out. Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he became like the children. So he partook of these same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. He is destroyed. This is why Jesus cries out on the cross. It is finished. It is finished. Death, hell, and the grave are defeated, and this includes the evil of today. And if we men, or true church men and women, ever get a hold of this truth, we'll push the evil right out of this world. We'll push it out of this church. Well, We'll push it out of our own lives, we'll push it out of this church, and we'll push it out of the community. It's something I tell the young men. I don't bring them if you don't want them to hear this, but I get them back there and I say, slay the dragon. Slay the dragon. Don't go the away, the world. Don't go to pornography. Don't go to what the world says about you should do playing around with a bunch of women. Don't go to these things. Don't play with homosexuality. Don't play with transgenderism. Don't play with all these things. Stay away from them. Just slay the dragon." Slay the dragon. Because the promises of God are that we can slay the dragon. But I'm afraid these promises of God lie dormant because we will not take them up as the church. This is where we have to become men by believing in the cross and becoming full participants of the takers of the promise of God. And go to 1 Samuel 17. I know I'm so out of time, but it's in this picture of David and Goliath that we get such a vision of this. 1 Samuel chapter 17, you know the story. Let me just set it up just a little bit for you. What's happening here is that the Philistines are on one hill. The Israelite army is on another hill, right? And every day, I believe it's morning and evening, Goliath comes out. And he walks out into the valley and he looks up at the Israelite army and he says to them, if you can defeat me, me and the Philistines will be your slaves, but if I defeat... The man you send down, you will be our slaves. Every day, armies of the Philistines over here, armies of the Israelites over here, Goliath of Gath walks out every day to test them for 40 days. And you guys know the story. I don't have to tell you this. In comes little David, 15 years old. He was just a little man. He wasn't big and strong. He couldn't beat a 9 foot 8 inch tall Goliath. This dude was too big. There's no way he could beat him. That's what the armies of all the Israelites were saying. They were being so pragmatic and so pitiful and so pathetic, a lot like the church today in many ways. They were saying, we can't do this. This guy's big. I can't beat him. Have you seen the arms? Have you seen his spear? Have you seen him fight before? He'll surely defeat us and all of Israel will be enslaved. And then the battle comes. David says, I can do this. David says, I can do this because I believe in the promises of God. And they come to verse 43 as David and uh, Goliath draw near to one another and kind of the intensity the of the situation rises there in verse 43. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you've come to me with sticks? Because David came with a sling and a stone. And so the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And you know why we get afraid? Because that's what the world is saying to us today when we stand up for Christ. Then David, verse 45, said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. Whom you have defied. See? He goes on to say, that's, by the way, that's just David believing in the promises. He's been a partaker in the promises of God. Because God said, no man will stand before you. You shall never die. You shall never die. Verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And that's exactly what he did. He struck him down with a sling and a stone, and it was with that sling and that stone he took the man's own sword and took the head off the man. Go to Hebrews 11 very quickly with me. Hebrews chapter 11. It's all the way almost to the end of your Bible in the New Testament. This whole chapter is people that believed in God's promises. Because to have faith is the same thing as means to believe. Verse 1, chapter 11, book of Hebrews. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. Where does that conviction come from? Because they're promises from God. God who can never lie. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Oh, and by it, the people of today will receive their accommodation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. And I've got my Bible marked so I can go quickly here. But if you see verse 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. If you go to verse 5, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he could not see death. Right? Just keep reading that. Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and was not found because God took him away. Now before he was taken and he was commended as having pleased God. Verse 6, and without faith, without belief, without believing in the promises, it's impossible to believe him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is why I don't want you to mess around with this. Verse 7, by faith Noah. Noah, by the way, built a boat. It never rained on the earth. It took him 100 years to build that boat. How much fun the people who lived around him you think made of him? What is wrong with Noah? The guy has lost his ever-loving mind. But by faith he built a boat because he believed in the promises of God. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed. Verse 9, by faith he went to live in the land. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah, verse 11, then 13. This is where I want to be, these three verses. All of these, it says, died in faith. They did, They died believing the promises of God, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. For people, verse 14, who speak. Thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of a land that from, from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to go back to that land. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a mighty city. We need men who can pray, not men who want to play. My heart is so broken over Drag Queen Story Hour and the number of fatherless young boys who will be persuaded by this culture to become homosexuals. My heart is broken, beloved, because I, I know that we have these promises. If we would just become full participants of the promises of God and let go of the promises of this world, we could make great strides in our church and in this community. We need men who will concern themselves with prayer. Have you ever prayed for an hour straight in your life? If we had a church full of people that did that, beloved, we'd be unstoppable in this community. Think of the lives that would be changed and the testimony that we've would We need men given to prayer. We need men who will pray and search their scriptures for the will of God for the promises of God, for what God's called them to do. We need men who will stand on the promises of God, men and women who will stand for truth and refute the error in our culture, men and women who will stand against the enemy who's already defeated, just as David did, understanding that they cannot defy the armies of the living God. We need men and women who will stand and say with King David, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the armies of the living God? Beloved, this is what makes all of God's promises incontrovertible. And it is all where all of his promises find their yes, Paul would say. It's in that cross. It's in that cross. Christ will reign. May he have dominion from sea to sea, from river to river, to the ends of the earth. May all the kings fall down before him and all the nations Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. It will not end. Jesus is not going to lay down one square inch of the ground that is his. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There was one there like the Son of Man, and he came to God, the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Beloved, we're just getting started. The Reformation was just 400 years ago. The advent of the printing press brought scripture to every plowboy's hands. And by technology, now it's traveling. It took William Carey 90 days to go to India. It takes me 16 hours. 40 years ago in China, there was only 1 million Christians. Today, there's 100 million. At the turn of the 20th century in Africa, there was, was 10 million, and now there's 300 million. They're sending missionaries to America. I pray that we'll become full participants in the promises of God. Don't separate your time. Don't bifurcate your time. Listen, I would rather you want to kill me than to allow you to walk from this place not warned about what it means to not grab a hold of the promises of God. Just one more passage of Scripture. Revelation 3, verse 15. I'll read it for you. This is to the church at Laodicea. He says, and to the angel of the church at Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Beloved, don't be lukewarm. That's my admonition to you. Be on fire for Jesus Christ. The words there that Jesus says in context were the way they treated people with stomach problems at that time. They would make them drink a bunch of lukewarm water so they would, excuse me, vomit. That's the picture. The ESV makes it too light. You keep vacating your time, trying to please both you'll please neither. And the promises are just as sure for judgment as they are for joy. Take great encouragement that all of God's promises are true and they will bring rejoicing into your life if you become a full participant in everything that he's promised. Gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come this morning I know Paul's prayer and this pastor's prayer is the same this morning. That we want everybody that claims the name of Christ to understand the rejoicing there is in the gospel. As we become, as we become partakers, as we have full knowledge, as Paul would call it, as we, um, as the Spirit works in us and sanctifies us and draws us ever closer to the reality of who you are and what you've done. That. There will be nothing we hold back from you, nothing of our time, talents, or treasures that we would no longer pine for this world, but only for your glory. Father, my prayer is that each person sitting here today understands that, that they've been warned in that. And Father, you're so long-suffering with us, you are so patient. Oh, the beauty of the gospel is that you have mercy. And that you're good to warn us and that you're good to give us your scripture and to discipline us so that we will turn back. Father, do that work among your people this day. What glorious hope there is in the gospel. What glorious hope there is in your mercy. Jesus has earned it all on our behalf. My prayer is that they each one understand the glorious realities of the mystery of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, the men...